0: As I said, we'll be looking uh, at the next section in our series on First Peter. And this morning that is particularly verses 17 to 21 of chapter 1 of Paul, uh, Peter's first letter. And the main point of this section is very clear and obvious. There's no uh, ambiguity from Peter uh, about what he wants to teach us. Uh, look at verse 17 Peter says if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear Peter says that if we are a believer if we are trusting in Christ to Uh, get us safely to heaven, not relying on ourselves, but relying on Christ and looking to him, Peter says that our lives here on earth, before we reach heaven, should be conducted in fear. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's a strange command." Surely God doesn't want us to live our lives in fear. I mean, just earlier in the chapter, Paul, or Peter, should I say, sorry, in verse 8, was talking about how believers can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How do joy and fear fit together? Now, you might be expecting me to say at this point that, when Peter says fear here, he doesn't really mean fear. Uh, he means something like respect. And that's not entirely wrong, uh, but we need to be careful, because the word that Peter uses, the word we translate here fear, is the Greek word phobo, and you may know what words we get from that the word phobia which means the fear of something or other and this word that peter uses is used at other times in the new testament to mean fear for example in hebrews uh, the author of hebrews talks about how we are naturally under the fear of death it's the same word fear phobo So we need to be careful not to change the word that Peter chose. Uh, If we change the word to just mere respect, we may lose something that Peter wants to teach us. But having said all that, we do need to make clear that when Peter says to us that we should conduct our lives here in fear... He does not mean an unhealthy fear. He means a healthy fear. It's not the terrified fear that we might have of something or someone who might harm us because they are evil or because they are wicked. Uh, It's not that kind of unhealthy fear. It's a healthy fear. It's like the kind of fear that we might have of the ocean or of a cliff face, or even of a tiger. Uh, Those are healthy fears to have. And what the difference is, is that all those things I just mentioned are good things in the right place. The ocean is good. The cliff is good. The tiger, even, is good if approached in the right way disrespect those things, be too cavalier with those things, and you put yourself at great peril. So we should fear God in a similar way to how we fear the sea, even though we might enjoy it, I'm sure we all enjoy uh, on occasion, you go to the seaside, perhaps even to sail on occasion. But every sailor will tell you, Show due respect for the sea. Don't treat it carelessly. Uh, You've got to have an appropriate fear if you might enjoy it, if you are to enjoy it rightly. Uh, These things must be treated with a caution in order to be enjoyed rightly. And it's much the same with God. Uh, In fact, to a much greater extent, that is true of God. Uh, We cannot be cavalier, we cannot be careless in the way we deal with God. The Bible tells us that he is a God to be feared. He has great might, he has great power. And we need to be careful how we deal with him. It reminds me of, uh, you may have read the Narnia books. Um, you may have read the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe," and in that story, um, the children, the Pevensey children, if you know the story, uh, are introduced for the first time to the character of Aslan. Uh, Mr. Beaver is telling them about the great King Aslan, who is a lion. And Lucy, the youngest child, when she hears that Aslan is a lion, she's shocked, and she says to Mr. Beaver, "Is he safe? Is he safe?" Uh, Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. I think that's a wonderful description uh, that can be applied to God also. God is not safe, but he is good. Uh, Our fear of him should not be the fear of a slave to a tyrannical tyrant, It's the fear of a sinner to a holy and great and righteous king. That's the sort of fear that we should have of God. Uh, As elsewhere in the Narnia books it says of God, it says of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. And God is not a tame God. Because that's how often we like to treat God. And we sort of put him into a little box, and we sort of say, God, is this, 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 and this. And we sort of put him into a little shelf of our lives, and we sort of uh, address him on occasion, but we don't allow God to sort of seep into every aspect of our life. We like to sort of keep him at arm's length, as though he's just an object on the shelf, just a part of our lives. But God is not like that. God lays claim on every single part of our lives. And as such, we need to walk before him carefully. Uh, A good word, actually, is a word we don't really use today. um, But the word is circumspection. Uh, When Peter says here, we should conduct our time here in fear... Uh, Another way of putting that is to say we should walk circumspectly. If you want to know what that word means, uh, imagine that you had to cross a field in bare feet. But in that field, there is lots and lots of broken glass. Now, imagine the way you would walk across that field. That's what it means to walk circumspectly, carefully, cautiously, carefully putting your feet so that you do not step on the glass. That's a healthy fear. And that's the way we should walk before God. Carefully, cautiously, listening to what he has to say. Our fear of him should not cause us to run away from him. Our fear of him should cause us to run to him. Because he is the only safe place. He's the only safe place, if I can put it like this, from himself. The most dangerous place to be is a long way from god but peter goes on so he explains that we should conduct our time here in this healthy circumspect fear of god but he gives two reasons why Uh, he gives us two reasons why and the first reason is before the command the second reason is after the command the first reason is the beginning of verse 17 and the second reason is from verses 18 to 21. So with the rest of our time here this morning, I'd just like to look at those two reasons that Peter gives. And hopefully that will convince us also why we should walk before God with this healthy fear. So what's the first reason Peter gives? Well, the first reason is in verse 17. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves at the time of your stay here in in fear. Uh, The first reason Peter gives is that we should live with this healthy fear because God is a God who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Uh, In other words, God hates evil. He hates bad behavior. Uh, What what we call just our weaknesses, what we call our foibles, uh, what we call our mistakes, God calls sin. And it means something to God. The Bible says that one day He will judge sin, Uh, He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. Our behavior towards God matters to him. And it says without partiality he will judge. He won't let certain people off without good reason and judge others. No, God hates sin wherever it is found. Nothing ever changes God's attitude towards sin. It's always an attitude of hatred, an attitude of um, uh, wrath against sin. And Peter says, because that's the case, we should be careful in our walk. We should be careful how we behave, because God is a God who hates sin. Um, Romans chapter 14, verse 12 says this, and perhaps one of the most scary verses in the Bible. Romans 14, verse 12 says, each of us, that's each of us, that's every single one of us, Shall give account of himself to God. (coughs) All of us one day will stand before God and have to give an account of ourselves. We'll have to explain ourselves to God. You could say that that is more certain than death uh, because Jesus may return before you die. But whether he returns or not, you will still have to face God and explain yourself to him. Have you ever pondered that? Have you ever thought about that? That you yourself, by yourself, will have to give an account of yourself to God. You won't be able to point to someone else to give an account for you. You will have to give an account to him. Uh, Listen to what Jesus said Uh, In Luke's gospel, he said, Beware hypocrisy, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. That's terrifying, isn't it? All your secrets, all the things which you hide from other people, which you don't want other people to know about, the things you kind of leave behind you when you come to church and put your nice face on, all the things hidden in the dark, Jesus says, will be revealed one day. Uh, There's no point being a hypocrite because all you're doing is just delaying the day when it's going to be revealed anyway. Uh, Doesn't that make you feel fear? It should. That's not an unhealthy fear to have that's the kind of fear that Peter is encouraging us to have but not in order to have us as I've said run away from God but to cause us to run to him to confess our weakness to confess our sin to accept the forgiveness he offers let me just read one more passage Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 and in these verses John is given a vision of the judgment day what it will look like on that day and John writes, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, but the things which were by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up their dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. John presents this terrifying picture of the whole earth, great and small, everyone. Uh, Everyone who's died, everyone who's alive stand before God and books are opened and in those books are written all the works of every single individual human beings. Your being. And no it says books, because that would be a huge number of them, surely. And your works are recorded there. Everything good and everything bad that you have done are recorded in these books. And God judges accorded to these books. And because we're all sinners to a greater or lesser extent, it says that all who were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. But thankfully, there is a book of life. And you might wonder, what is the book of life? Well, the book of life is the book where everyone's name is written who is trusting in Christ, who have had their sins forgiven by Christ, Because that's the only hope we have on that day. Uh, There's no chance our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. Many people think that. I'm afraid, no, sorry, (laughs) it's not going to happen. All of our bad deeds vastly outweigh our goods because even our good things are tainted with bad. The only hope we have is that our sin has been forgiven by Christ, that he took our punishment on himself our punishment must be paid god cannot just simply sweep it under the carpet but jesus came to die on the cross to take our punishment on himself and when we trust him when we turn to him now and ask him to forgive us and ask him to change us our names are written in the lamb's book of life and so when all our bad deeds are proclaimed for the universe to hear god can then say or christ can then say But they are mine. They are forgiven. All of that has been washed. All of that has been forgiven. That is the only hope we have. But even for believers, we should live life with a healthy caution because it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves. Wouldn't it be terrible if you thought your name was in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you thought you were a believer? And then you come to that day and your name is not written there. And all you have are your works which you will be judged by. And that's why the Bible says that we should be careful even as believers. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, let's not just rest in something we said or did ten years ago. 20 years ago 30 years ago ask yourself today are you relying on Christ are you walking with him Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith test yourselves that's what it means to walk in healthy fear don't just assume look at your life and see does it show evidence That Christ is working in you, that Christ has forgiven you, that Christ is alive in you. And if not, run to God, run to Christ immediately. Don't leave this to chance. That's what it means to conduct our lives here in fear. Constantly running to Christ because he is our only hope. So that's the first reason that Peter gives, why we should conduct our lives in healthy fear, because God will one day judge this world. And our only hope is in Christ. So let's ensure we are in him, that we are trusting in him. But Peter goes on and he gives another reason. Uh, Look at the end of verse 17 and 18. Uh, He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter says to these believers, he says, conduct yourselves in healthy fear, knowing that you weren't redeemed by something insignificant, You weren't redeemed by something small. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It reminds me of a story i heard many years ago, actually, when I was at school. And it was told as a true story, but I almost can't believe it was true. But uh, it was talking about the lady, I think it was my head mistress at school. And she was talking about someone she knew who was walking down a street. And as he was walking, he saw uh, a mother. And behind her walking was... Uh, her child and as he was walking he saw a car uh, going too fast and it was losing control and the car was heading towards this child uh, who hadn't seen it and uh, the man ran and he grabbed the child and he managed to pull the child away but he was rammed by the car. Now, I'm not certain to what extent um, but he was able to pull the child out of the way um, but the mother, who had been oblivious, turned around and just saw uh, this man grab her child and didn't somehow understand what was happening. And she um, came up to him and snatched her child away and said to him, don't you think you're too old to be playing with children? She had not realised what this man had done and he'd been uh, significantly injured by this car. But she did not appreciate what the sacrifice that man had given. And so she treated him with no respect whatsoever. Now that's a small example, but we can sometimes treat Christ in a not dissimilar way. Uh, We can show so little respect to Christ because we do not appreciate the greatness of the sacrifice that he has brought for us, that he has redeemed us with. It was not a small thing for Christ to come to this world and die on the cross for us. Uh, there is nothing. There is no greater sacrifice that has ever been made, as Peter puts it. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. That happens every day. Things are bought and redeemed uh, with silver and gold. Uh, those are common things in comparison. He says, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There is no one and there is nothing greater than Christ. And the only solution for your sin, the evil that you do in your life and that I do in my life, the only solution was the greatest person in existence dying a gruesome and terrifying death on the cross. The person whom God loves most in this world had to suffer and die on the cross Uh, Long before you were born, long before you even existed, angels were worshipping Jesus in heaven. And long after you have died, angels will be worshipping Jesus in heaven. Uh, Your life is just the merest blink in this world compared to the life of Christ. There is no one of greater importance. All the celebrities of this world pale into insignificance compared to Christ. And yet it was Christ who died for our sin. So we see that what Christ did for us was costly because of his value. There is no one more valuable than Christ. And so that should cause us to be careful how we live our lives. If God paid such a great cost to redeem us, then how can we live carelessly? How can we live as though we were deemed by something small and insignificant? Uh, So Christ's death was costly because of his value, but it was also costly because of the amount of preparation that God put into it. Uh, Many things in life are precious, aren't they, because they take a long time to make. Uh, I don't know if you know how Parmesan cheese is made. I won't bore you with uh, the details of it, but it's a long process to make Parmesan cheese. That's why Parmesan cheese is so expensive. Um, Some of the best Parmesan cheeses can have been aged for 10 years, and they are the most expensive. Uh, So even cheese (laughs) increases in its value based on the amount of time put into it. But Peter tells us that an infinitely longer amount of time was put into Christ's death for us by God look at verse 20 peter says he that's christ indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifesting these last times for you in other words what peter's saying is jesus death on the cross wasn't an off the cuff decision by god uh, he didn't just think on a whim oh i know what i'll do I'll send Christ to die on the cross. No, this was a plan long in the making. Even before the foundation of the world, God had a plan that his son would redeem the world. That's why Revelation 13 verse 8, when it talks about that book of life, it says it's the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was no off-the-cuff decision this is the purpose for which this world was created to glorify christ that's how much time and energy and value god puts into what christ did did on the cross That's so why the bible says all things were made through him and for him and by him and to him that's how much preparation has gone into what christ did for us now, just to make it absolutely clear, um, this has been a plan which God had before he even created the world. But that does not make us, therefore, innocent. Okay, you might think, well, if God had planned this before I was even born, then how can he blame me for the sins I commit? And the answer is that the fact that God is able to weave your sin and my sin into his beautiful plan does not excuse us of our sin. Uh, When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the last thing on their minds was accomplishing God's plan. That's not what they were thinking. They just saw the fruit and they wanted it for themselves. They didn't care about God's plan. They wanted to satisfy their own desires. And you and I are just the same. Uh, We want to accomplish our own desires so we ignore God. That's all that's going on in our heads. And that's why we deserve to be judged. But in God's wonderful plan, God is able to even use our sins as part of his plan. Though That doesn't make our sin any less sinful. That's why Jesus said of Judas that it would have been better if he had never been born than he betrayed the Son of God. Even though... You could say that Judas set in motion the salvation of the world. If Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus, then Jesus would not have been crucified and we could not be saved. But that does not mean that Judas is therefore innocent, because that was not Judas's purpose. He had greed in his heart, he had betrayal in his heart, and he will be and has been rightly judged. Nevertheless, God has a plan over and above all our actions. And because that's the case, we need to be very careful how we live because we have such a great and mighty God who has been preparing our salvation since before the foundation of the world. So we see that Christ's death was costly because of Christ's value, uh, because uh, Christ's death was costly because of the amount of time spent in its preparation, But lastly, we see it's costly in its exclusivity, in the exclusivity of Christ's death. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 21. Uh, Peter says again, who, that's Jesus, through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter says our only hope is through Christ." Because there's only one person in history who has paid the price for sin. Uh, There's only one person who has conquered death. Because there's only one person who has died and risen again, never to die again. Uh, Several people have been raised from the dead in history, but they all died later. Christ is the only one who has died and risen again and will never die again because he has conquered death. There's no one else. There's no one else who has done that. There's no one else you can follow who has defeated death. Whoever else you follow, that path will always end in death. Whether you are Buddha, whether that's Buddha, whether that's Muhammad, whether that's whatever other religious leader you want to give, their path always ends in death. But Jesus' path ends in life, even though it goes through Death. That's the wonder of Jesus Christ. And he is our only hope. As he himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what I mean by its exclusivity. That's why we should have a healthy fear. Because he is our only hope. Uh, In closing, imagine it like this. Imagine you were on a cliff edge. And you are dangling by a rope, and beneath you is a massive drop, and there is certain death at the bottom of it, except for this rope that you are clinging to, and it's being held by someone above you. Now, in that situation, you're going to be very careful, aren't you, how you treat the person holding the rope. You're not going to insult that person, you're not going to do anything to deliberately displease that person. You're not going to be swinging on that rope carelessly because of that big drop beneath you. And that is, in essence, the situation we're in in life. Christ is holding the rope, He is our only hope from eternal judgment. He's the only way we can be saved. Yet how many Christians live carelessly? How many Christians live in a way which insults the one? who saved us. Every time we sin, we're essentially agreeing with those who put Christ on the cross. Uh, We are, as it were, putting a new nail into his hand. How can we live that way when Christ is our only hope? That's why Peter says we should conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in healthy fear. Mm -hmm. Don't insult Christ, instead run to him, thank him for what he has done and live as humble servants of him. Not in terrified, unhealthy fear of him, but in a careful, cautious way because he is our only hope. So I trust those thoughts are helpful to us and I hope the end result is that not that we live in a way where we are terrified every moment of what might happen to us, but instead we live in a way of healthy fear, respecting God for who he is and thanking him for what he has done for us. And with those thoughts in mind, we're going to stand to sing our final hymn now, number 93. Uh, Number 93, and I chose it particularly for the last verse. Uh, Verse 6 of Uh, Hymn number 93, it says, fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service, your delight, your wants shall be his care. I love that thought. Uh, If you fear God, first and foremost, then you need not fear anything else. So let's stand to sing, in closing, our last hymn, number 93, through all the changing scenes of life.